0: Welcome to Ship with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. Growing up I always used to talk about health and wellness to everyone around me. Some people would take my advice, some people would avoid it, And some would ignore it saying that, hey, man, I've got bad genes, or this runs in my family. The area of genetics or this information on how complex genes work at that time was still limited to people maybe in Harvard, Stanford, MIT, or probably in the secret grounds of Russia or China. And unfortunately, I could never help that set of people because, to be honest, genes was an alien language to me itself. Then fast forward so many years to this date, the world knows so much about genetics and genes, but the long question there's still like this old question still arises, do genes dictate our destiny? I can surely give you my take on it, but to take this to another level, I have invited a special guest on the podcast today. My guest on the show today has taken, trust me, she's taken a deep dive in health, how deep you might ask. Well, she's got a degree in microbiology, anatomy, health and wellness from Texas and Parker University. She also has a doctorate of chiropractor and has written a book on genetics. Everyone, welcome Dr. Chrissy Sutton. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thank you. Thanks. That was a great, eloquent introduction.
0: Well, I'm sure I could be saying more because you've done so many things. But tell me something. You've got expertise in so many fields why did you decide to go after genetics and even write a book on genetics?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So, it was just another piece in becoming a better clinician, basically, and trying to really bridge the gap that I saw was present in with my patients, wanting to know about these things and as basically there was a lot of information about genetics before the direct to consumer genetic tests like 23andMe came to market, but there wasn't a lot of testing of genetics. So I would talk to people about a genetic risk, but I didn't actually have the readily available and uh, for many people affordable way to just test for a large number of genes. And as that became available with 23 andme at least at that point in time, um, this was about 10 years ago, then I realized, okay, this is just another clinical tool that we need to implement so that it's not just me talking about a theoretical risk, but I'm actually able to say, you do have this gene, this is what this means, this is what we can do about it. And it just created a much more solid clinical and uh, just patient approach. It created a better treatment plan for the patient. And um, take, it took as much, if, the more questions and variables you can take out of a patient's clinical situation, the better long-term approach you get. So there was that piece. And then I believe that if you really want to help somebody with something, you have to really know as much as you can about it. And so there was not a lot of good information about a lot of these genes at the time that I wrote the book. And so people were wanting to know about these things. And I just didn't feel like there were a lot of trustworthy well-researched sources and I just felt like there was a lot of like marketing and um, confusion and questionable recommendations. So I I wrote this book about a ton of different genes and I tried to you know keep it well-researched while still clinically relevant and easy to understand and I also realized in the process that of not just writing the book but also really looking at people's genetic reports which primarily I personally use 23andMe and then I download that data and I upload it to my website, Genetic Detoxification, which gives me additional information and a genetic report that goes along with my book. So those are the primary things I'm looking at. Um, Just because, and I'm not saying 23andMe is the best. I think there's probably some, you know, good and better products coming on the market. It's just so readily available and so many people have done it that it's a valuable tool to know and use. And so um, as I wrote the book and then I started looking at people's reports, it became very clear that certain genes were really sticking out to be relevant, not just you know genetically, there's a lot of research behind them, but they were actually creating lab things that were showing up and, you know, symptoms and diseases. And so now I've kind of been able to more quickly address the things that I think are the most pro- bigger pro- biggest priority. And eventually maybe I'll write another book just on those and because I've continued to study and teach and even in some cases write about those. So um, it's really? just, yeah, th- there's a lot to it. So.
0: Yeah, I, I like some of the things that you brought up there. First thing is that the more data you have about someone, like as a clinician or you know as a doctor or just the more data you have, you can look at the problem in a more optimized way. And then there's always this problem that, you know, okay, I've got a lot of data now I use. And for those of you listening who don't know, 23andMe is like a genetic analysis um, tool and website that you can log on to and you can order your samples and then they upload the data on their website. And what really gets to me here is that if, you're, if you don't understand science and if you're not really passionate about health and if you're, you know, you're not one of those people who can read long reports, then sometimes having a lot of data might even confuse you. And then to that, you've made a solution where you can take all that data, take all that confusion because, again, we have a compliance issue, right? People know what's good for them, but then they just don't want to do it because, you know there's too much information out there like you mentioned but i what i like about your approach is you know you're taking the raw data which people have tested for and then you're running it through your own website and your own knowledge and looking you're combining what is there in research papers theories and anecdotal evidence to comprise something which is more holistic which goes beyond the thing of okay go for a 20-minute walk and you know eat your vegetables because we know like there's more to it a person can be walking twenty you know twenty minutes or running for twenty minutes and be eating all the vegetables and trying to sleep all right, but then if there is some biological thing to it, then you know that person's always tired, lethargic, cannot sleep well, cannot eat well, and so it goes it's more complex, and I like the approach that you've taken, like taking raw data and converting it into you know manageable results but then for the people who don't really understand this whole genetic thing right now. We often hear the word, I mean, genes are sort of the newbie in the whole health industry. They've been there for a while, but people are more accustomed to DNA or the word DNA. And most people would say, hey, you know, I know some, I know some things about DNA. But a lot of people don't understand the whole science of genetics. So how would you explain in simple words like genes or genetics to a person who is trying to wrap their idea head around it? Sorry.
1: Yeah, so... Um, let me see, I wanna make this easy to understand. So, you know, when you build a house, you kind of have like a blueprint on our building, you have kind of like a design for what that house is gonna be like. And then um, the design of the house will depend on ultimately your input, the, Weather and building the house will affect it in some cases, the materials you use, um, the, the intricacies of the plumbing, all of that comes into ultimately building the house. So like our genes are kind of the blueprint for us. And then it's our environment that ultimately determines how those genes are expressed, meaning like how our house is built. So the genetics are important and that's not, we can't deny that, but like you said, you know, DNA is not our destiny. Having said that, it most certainly is a powerful part of who we are and it's kind of our nature. So if you've heard the term nature versus nurture, the DNA is very much kind of like the nature of just biologically who you are at the most fundamental core. Having said that, your nurture, which is kind of how you are nurtured as you grow up, your environment ultimately will determine how those genes are expressed. Meaning that I can have the exact same gene that can be expressed as something very bad or potentially something good, <clears throat> in some cases, depending on my environment. So DNA is not our destiny. And I think that's a dangerous path to go down. If you start looking at DNA, and you don't have, you know, the tools and the guidance to help you kind of know where to focus, and what actionable things you can do about it, that can become kind of overwhelming and destructive. But if you do have the tools to help you kind of understand and guide you as far as what actionable steps you can take to basically identify your genetic Achilles heel and then protect yourself from it, because let's face it, most of us do have genetic Achilles heels, and it becomes much easier to protect ourselves from them if we can really laser in and focus on that one thing or two things rather than just kind of, okay, I have to do all of this to be healthy, which the more you do, the better. It's just sometimes it's nice to be able to kind of focus a little bit more on the top priorities.
0: I love your explanation. I love your explanation and your segue into that genes don't determine our destiny, but then there is this whole concept of, you know expressing those genes or flipping those switches on and off via means of epigenetics and this is another area of study that has been i mean it's it's been popping out everywhere on how basically in for anyone who's listening your your genes might determine everything right you might be on high risk of cholesterol or something else, but then it is your lifestyle, it's your environment, it's the inputs that you go through, which we call epigenetics, which actually determine if you, you know, think of your genes as like a switch in the house, right? A light switch, whether you're switching that switch on or off. Am I, am I sort of going in the right direction, Dr. Chrissy?
1: As far as switching things on and off? Absolutely. You know, um, you can certainly switch things on and off depending on your environment. And you can certainly, you know, trigger bad genes to be turned on and create diseases and symptoms. Um, But you can also monitor your environment through labs, just generally, you know, paying attention to what you're doing as far as your general health to really keep those bad genes off as much as possible. And some of us have, you know, more of a challenge to keep those bad genes off. That's just how it is. You know, it's, the life isn't fair. Some people have lost the genetic lottery and um, they have to be much more diligent about their environment and their epigenetics.
0: Mm-hmm. I so. yeah, I like that explanation. It's also like, um, you know, we always think of like a one solution that fits all and most of the people will have that type of like an approach whether you see an Instagram celebrity or you see like you know Hollywood star and they're just say oh perfect this is someone that I want to look like or feel like and then I'm just going to go ahead and do everything that this person does but then 90% of the time people fail because they don't acknowledge the most essential thing of life, which is biochemical individuality, that all of us are made different. We have all, you know, and then this ties into the genes as well. Some people's genes are favorable towards some outcomes. Some people's muscle fibers are favorable towards some I- outcomes. So there's all these nuances that are different. And to your point, if, if someone who's listening and you want to go out and do all the things and you think that you're not doing everything is going to help yeah it might help but then if you want to like target like you know super focus on yourself or your family or your kids and see what might be one of those things that you're missing or you know what might be some of the things that are you have more of and bring it to balance that would be a better approach than to just following someone's advice on you know on how their body works rather than how your body works. Because again, we're all different. She spoke about the genetic lottery. Some people win it. Some people just cruise through it. But again, it's your understanding and the knowledge and the protocol that gives you the power to take over. Now, Dr. Chrissy, when I look about, when I think about like genes, right? So something stand out. First thing that stands out is that most of the people, I mean, most of the literature that's out there will tell you that, you know, the human body has around 37 trillion cells, right? And then in these cells, we have our DNA. Some people would argue they have, we have more cells. And you look at the human cells. Then within those cells, you have the mitochondria, which if people have been following the podcast, you guys would know that these are mostly the power plants of our cells. And these are the ones that give us more energy or energy in all. And the mitochondria have their own DNA, which is different from the human DNA. And then we're looking at, you know, the other big population that comprises of us, uh, even outnumbering the human cells, hundred trillion, that is the gut microbiome. And then the gut microbiome also have their own, you know, they're, they're different from us. They have their own genotype. So how does a person, when you're looking at like recommendations, how does a person navigate through like the human genome and then the mitochondrial genome and the bacterial genome? So this could be like confusing for some people. So what's your take on it? Like how does someone navigate through this?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. So, um, I mean, the human genome is the genes that we have inherited from our mom and dad. And that's, you know, within our nucleus of our cell. And that's kind of like our blueprint for us. Um, having said that, you know, the mitochondria, it has its own DNA and its own genome, and we inherit our mitochondria from our mothers. So that's a maternal inheritance. We The father's mitochondria do not get passed down. That just comes from your maternal side. And that actually the mitochondria, I don't know, I won't go into too, I won't bore you with too much of the history of the mitochondria, but As you might already know, the mitochondria are an evolutionary um, symbiotic relationship between the human cell and an ancient bacterial cell. So basically it's this symbiotic relationship where the human cell gives the mitochondria, which is this ancient bacteria that has now become a part of our body, but is a separate DNA. So the human has human cell, you know, helps the mitochondria survive and then the mitochondria helps the human cell survive which then allows us to grow and thrive. Now the gut microbiome, each bacteria or virus or parasite which all of those things create our gut microbiome, each of those has its own individual DNA that is not like, hasn't become a part of the human cell, like the mitochondria, but is very much separate as an individual or in a separate species. And so um, each of those, which there are a ton of them, not just in diversity, although most people don't have enough diversity within their microbiome. Um, but with just sheer number. Yeah, you know, the I couldn't, I would be making up this statistic if I was to say off the top of my head right now what the actual number of bacteria is in your gut, but it's more than the number of cells in your body. And one of the potential, you know, biggest epigenetic switches, like you were talking about, if you want to keep those good genes on and keep bad genes from turning off. The gut microbiome is one of the most powerful tools for doing that. And unfortunately, you know, we live in a day and age where antibiotics are, at least in America, being overused, overprescribed. People's gut microbiome is not as healthy as it should be. Um, not to say antibiotics haven't helped a lot of people, but they have caused a lot of damage to our gut microbiome. And that's why using so I'm really into like using really precision nutrition to prevent and help correct problems and for example with the gut microbiome and I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here so I'm sorry If, if somebody's taking an antibiotic The only probiotic they can take while they're on that antibiotic is Saccharomyces boulardii, which is actually a good yeast, and it's not killed by antibiotics because it's a good yeast. But what it does is it actually kind of protects your digestive system from the bad stuff being able to kind of set up shop and grow back at an extremely high rate post-antibiotics. So taking Saccharomyces boulardii during an antibiotic will protect you from having like a bad C. diff, which creates really bad diarrhea and digestive problems. You're less likely to get a C. diff infection, which is a bad bacteria that everybody has. You just have to keep it all within range and under control. Um, So if you want to protect somebody from like as many bad side effects from antibiotics, they must take that Saccharomyces boulardii while they're on the antibiotic. And then after taking the antibiotic, they've got to load up on really high doses of strong, high quality probiotics. And I'm not just talking about like getting the yogurt that is at the grocery store, which I'm sure in Dubai, the yogurt is much better than it is here. But here it's largely like sugar. And so I mean, there's some good ones and like, those are good and I like them. But I think ultimately if you're not giving somebody a good probiotic after an antibiotic, you're doing them a lot of harm, harm that you may not really truly understand because it may not manifest for years. Mm-hmm. So.
0: And um, the amount of fights, not fights, but arguments that I've had with doctors over the years saying that, Hey, you need this, um, antibiotic and I'm like no I don't there must be some other way like you know okay yeah some serious cases you might need or people around the world might need antibiotics but I have tried my best to avoid antibiotics you know after injuries after I mean God knows what there were only a few things you know after some root canal treatments and there are some other things that I had to take antibiotics but like like Chrissy said I was sure that Right after taking the antibiotics, I go in a very, very powerful probiotic fiber, prebiotic fiber, the whole lots, trying to attack or not attack, but like helping the good gut bacteria restore balance and flourish. Because once you take antibiotics, and a lot of people in this part of the world would just pop antibiotics, even if they feel like a cold, like, you know, they start sneezing and they pop in antibiotics. Because they know that mm-hmm. the doctor gave them something like this last time. And it's so nice that you brought this up. And anyone who's listening, please be careful. There are sometimes there are other ways. And it's you don't have to throw a bomb in your gut that will create that will kill all of your good bacteria. Now yeah. moving Go ahead. on. So now we know about you've told us about genes and DNA. And now we know that there are different, you know, DNAs. So talk to us about one of the most either underlooked or overlooked topic. Talk to us about protein and what does protein do or amino acid? What do they do in favor of like the genes?
1: Well, you need protein, which amino acids are like the building blocks of protein. You need amino acids, a complete protein, all of the essential and non-essential amino acids, but your body, so your body makes some amino acids and those are the non-essential ones. Mm -hmm. Now, the essential ones are the ones that your body doesn't make and you have to get from your diet. Mm -hmm. And so you need like these building blocks, just like, you know, you need bricks to build a house. The protein is what creates the, is what your body uses to make, enzymes, to give integrity to cells, to really do the work that we need, whether it's building a muscle or making sure that your immune system's able to function properly. Protein is really kind of the building blocks for it. And so that's basically the, that's the role of protein in our body. Now, some people, metabolize proteins maybe a little bit differently. Maybe they, some people need more protein than others, but um,
0: vegans
1: (laughs) vegans need a lot more protein than they are getting. I'm not, I, as a clinician, and I I say everything, you know, with the clinical window and kind of perspective, Um, as a clinician, I have never seen a healthy vegan and if they are healthy, then they haven't been vegan for very long. They would, and I'm gonna get some angry comments here, and I'll just no. say oh that it God. won't be the first and it won't be the last. But um, basically, you know, most people that feel really good as a vegan, they have a dairy allergy. And the reason that they feel so noticeably better when they become vegan is because they get off of dairy. Um, and that's kind of the immediate improvement. And then what inevitably happens is they end up getting um, deficient in amino acids and nutrients, and they their health deteriorates. And so if they're really really careful and aware, then they might supplement with a lot of the amino acids and vitamins and nutrients that they're not getting. But it's just really hard and. Virtually impossible to supplement your way out of a really deficient diet.
0: Yeah. You might be able to do it
1: for a while, but eventually it will catch up to you.
0: I mean, I did it for three years and I was one of those vegans like, hey, do you know how much protein blood has? This was years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I fell into the vegan trap and then came out of it. I realized it wasn't the best. And yeah, since then, I've just been telling, giving people a word of caution because again, we can advise people on our take or what the research says or what the science says or what you've been seeing in your clinic. But at the end, it's their choice. And then, you know, it's just making them aware that, yeah, okay, some vegans would say, oh yeah, I can supplement with vitamin B12, but there's just not that. There's carnosine, carnitine, there's creatine. There's so many complex things that truly for a long term, it might be a bit difficult. And then also there are, I don't know what's your take on this, but then talking and building up on that idea of biochemical individuality, there are some people who are better suited to be vegans, or maybe they have like the better genes to be vegans than, you know, someone living in a completely different climate, a completely different country, completely different ancestry. So you sort of have to look at that equation as well
1: absolutely yes yes the it it's so complicated as far as each individual is unique and that's why i don't think there's you know one diet that's right for everybody i think Mm -hmm. you kind of have to meet people where they are and go from there to help build a plan but as far as you know the vegan thing and just diet individuality um Certainly, we did not evolve to not get meat in our diet, like without meat, we don't get b twelve and without b twelve we inevitably die um you know the the reason we have these incisors mm-hmm. is to you know that uh kind of don't look at my teeth I need braces. The reason that we have those <laughs> is because um to digest to break down meat, you know, we evolved to eat meat. Having said that, I don't know about your country, but in America, you know, we eat too much meat. And so um, most, most of the time, most people eating too much and not the vegetables. So we got to kind of find a compromise. But to your point about what you were saying about some people genetically are just better suited. What's interesting to me about that. I was just writing about that before, because I'm writing a book right now about, hemochromatosis and iron overload and I was just writing about that this morning how you know people who are vegans and vegetarians are less likely to have a problem with iron overload because they don't get as much iron in their diet. And there's a gene for that which a lot of people have. it's actually it's called the Celtic curse because so many people of you know northern European descent and Irish descent have it. So I'm sure there's a lot of other examples like that out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. The iron overload is one of the reasons why I would donate blood every two months. Uh, and in Dubai, it's one of those things that you can only donate blood every two months. It's not like- Wow, you donate blood every two months? Every two months, just to keep my iron levels in check. Do you
1: Have you checked your genes to see if you have those iron genes?
0: I don't, but normally my iron levels—I mean, they're not extremely high, but they're just—they're not super low as well. So, just a good recycling of blood. I thought is a good idea, and it sort of gives—I mean—provides a blood pool bank to people. But one of so the- you don't
1: you don't have those genes?
0: No, I don't. Don't? Have, those, don't have those SNPs.
1: That's amazing that you're able to donate blood that much. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> And what, the next thing that happens is sometimes I feel vegans or vegetarians are also somewhat at the risk of iron overdose because most of the people, most of the vegans, at least when I was vegan, I was heavily reliant on, you know, these vegan cereals. And if you flip the back of any cereal, like, you know, any processed cereal, most of them would have unappreciate, appreciable amounts of high iron. And this is one thing that, you know, struck me after many years. I was like, oh, okay, all these processed foods, like, you know, mostly people would look at the calories and how much potassium or protein it has. But if you look at just the iron content, it's like half a serving is more than what you need in like a week. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. And why, if it's such a great food, why are they having to add all these nutrients to it? You know, they, they strip it all out in the processing and then they add things back to make it, you know, more nutritious. So,
0: so the general consumer just goes and says, Oh, okay, perfect. I'm getting iron and potassium and whatever protein. I
1: mean, I would wager that most people don't even look at those things. I would wager that most people just look at the calories and maybe the fat. And then, and the carbs, and they're just, that's it. They're done. Yeah. Like, you know, or maybe they just don't look at anything and they're just, you know, Is it eating some more people else? like us
0: who are like looking into the details of everything. before, oh, yeah. yeah. But let's move on. Now, we you mentioned a few things about, um, you know, these genes that might be harmful or these genes that might, you know have an advantageous or mostly a disadvantageous point. So let's talk about some of these genes. What are some of the top genes do you think that, um, you know, you would specifically look into when you look at like a big report, like the one from 20, okay. something that yeah. stands out?
1: that's a good question. So I, I mentioned the hemochromatosis iron genes. I always look at those and I'm always looking at um, iron lab panels. Let me keep, let me preface this with, I don't like to look at genes without a really full lab panel, like a very comprehensive lab panel. Um, And the labs that I order might even be influenced by the genes that you have. So I might order additional things that I may not otherwise order if you don't have a specific gene. And so, um, but in general, I like to have both of those things to kind of build a picture as far as where the priority is because I think genes alone are not nearly as valuable and sometimes misguiding as having additional clinical information and labs are a part of that also just talking to people and talking to them about you know what their lives are like what they are doing what they're not doing okay so I mentioned the hemochromatosis chain um I think the APOE4 the Alzheimer's gene is really important as well Mm -hmm. Um, there's definitely strong data showing that that increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease, late onset Alzheimer's disease, meaning after age 65. And with all diseases, but especially neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, you can prevent them much more so than you can. There's really not a good cure, right? Like once you have damage to your brain, that's a very difficult situation to get out of. What is much easier and successful is preventing damage. And of course, you know, we know how to do that. It's just more work and it's a chronic disease process that you have to prevent. It's not as easy as saying, "Okay, you have this symptom, and what, you know, take this pill." It yeah. doesn't work. You know, that's that's not how you prevent diseases. And it you know, happens Alzheimer's a period
0: of time, right? It happens over years or maybe decades.
1: Decades, decades. It, it. You know what? I I'm glad you said that. So by the time you have had symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. The damage has been going on for decades before that. And I believe that the damage actually often begins as a young child. And the reason I say that is because when you have the Alzheimer's gene and you get a concussion, you don't heal up from that concussion as well. It, it, your blood-brain barrier always becomes... Leaky after concussion, regardless of your genotype. But if you have that Alzheimer's gene, then there's empirical evidence that your blood brain barrier does not heal up as well as it should and could otherwise. And you have this kind of prolonged leaky blood brain barrier, which creates more inflammation, neuroinflammation, more neurodegeneration. So, Most children get concussions. Mm -hmm. By the time you're an adult, you have gotten a concussion. If you haven't, then either you're not aware of it or, you know, you've just lived a very charmed life. I don't think that's a real thing. I think, you know, anybody that's had a child knows like they fall. (laughs) And then if you're in sports, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have a concussion and the problem is most people don't realize that they have a concussion and they don't realize because they're not educated on what that really looks like they're waiting for somebody to say diagnose them or like you know they pass out and that's just not what most concussions look like but if you've been playing sports that were contact sports you know you've had a concussion so as these people with this alzheimer's gene are growing up they get these concussions that are not Probably diagnosed and healed up correctly because the average person and clinician is just not very good at this specific problem and hasn't been good at the specific problem for, you know, proceeding up to this point. They're still not good at it. They've never been good at it. Hopefully, we'll get better. So, this damage, I believe, starts at a very young age. This is why I think that all children should get genetic testing. Mm-hmm for certain things at a young age. Because personally, like I would not be comfortable allowing my daughter to play a contact sport. Like right now she plays soccer and she's really into it. And I'm aware that soccer is the most common concussion sport for a girl. I'm aware of that. And I know, you know, I'm careful. I pay attention to what happens, the symptoms. Everything having said that it's going to happen because this is a contact sport. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I would not be comfortable with her playing that if she had an Alzheimer's gene and I look out on the field and I know some of those kids have that gene and they're going to get a concussion and they're not going to heal up from it as well as they should. And the long-term effects of that, we don't, you know, you just don't understand. Um, or maybe know, or be able to connect back to that event. But it, I believe that if we're looking at a neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's disease, it starts at a very young age, which means that you need to be diagnosed with that gene at a very young age. And you need to start a very personalized, precise healthcare plan at an early age. And that's the approach that I take with my patients. And, you know, I've only been in practice for 10 years maybe 11. And so I can't tell you if like, I don't have that long-term 60 year study, Mm -hmm. but having said that, um, you know, if you look at the medications that are available right now for these neurodegenerative diseases, none of them are fixing the problem and they really don't have super long-term studies either because it's virtually, it's not cost effective. You know, they just want to get it to market. Mm-hmm. as fast as possible, rather than really kind of have that 60-year study.
0: Sometimes I feel that having, I mean, you know, as a doctor, you have like a different approach to it. But as a consumer or as someone who who might have, I mean, might someone in my family might have Alzheimer's or, you know, I wanted to prevent this situation faster. Sometimes you I feel like you don't need those six years. Yeah, okay. It it's always better that you have a long term data and then you can end up mm-hmm. with a, sort of an analysis. But there if there are lifestyle interventions, if there are like non-pharmaceutical, like nutraceutical or some other sort of invention, non-invasive, you know, sort of inventions that can come across, then and if someone has seen it like let's say, for example, 10 years is a long time, but like let's say you've seen Uh, you were in practice for three or four years and suddenly using some techniques, some of your patients are really getting better and you have that anecdotal data, then why not use it for like the others? Because, you know, some people won't have 60 years. Some people won't even have 10 years. And this is the classic situation that you take all these guys of, you know, now having Alzheimer's and dementia and all of these things. So yeah, sometimes it's more like, See what works and do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. Let me let me that's a good point. And I wanna kinda talk about that for a minute because I don't want people to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm 60 or 70 and it's too late for me to do anything about it. Because it's you know, it's never too late. It's just the earlier you get started the better. Just like it's much better to start saving money when you're young than to wait until you're in your 60s and start saving for your retirement when you're 65. You know, the sooner I'm you start, yeah. You know, the it com- the work that you do. Just like, in, you know, your savings compounds with time. Well, what you do when you're young compounds with time for the better or the worse, depending on if you're making good or bad decisions. Having said that. The you know, absolutely it is never too late. you know, somebody coming in in their 40s is better than coming in with their 60 at their 60s with the same genetic you know challenge. Some what I really don't like is somebody coming in like in their 70s and they already have memory problems. Having said that, I have seen improvement in those people, and I believe that there's, less degeneration in those people. And we can measure that improvement by doing a Montreal cognitive assessment, which is a, you know, objective numerical way to actually measure brain health. And so every treatment plan is different because everybody's different, but there are specific like nutraceuticals that I, to your point, I'm just like, let's do it, you know, because you don't have anything to lose at that point in time. Mm
0: -hmm. true. I'm glad you brought that up. So, what else you've spoken about apoE4? And I, correct me if I'm wrong. Does apoE4 have some um, some role to play in cholesterol metabolism as well? Yeah, That's, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So, um, with you can inherit, you know, one or two apoE4s. You can have none. Um, you can have ApoE2, which is protective against Alzheimer's. Um, but most people, if they'll, most people don't have either. Most people are ApoE3,3, which is that's neutral as far as you're not likely to get Alzheimer's disease. It's not protective, it's just neutral. Now you can inherit one or two ApoE4. If you inherit one, your risk for high cholesterol and Alzheimer's disease is higher than if you had none. If you inherit two, then your risk for high cholesterol and Alzheimer's disease is higher than if you had just inherited one. And not only is the risk higher, but the age of onset is younger. So the average person that inherits two will start seeing symptoms around age 65. And then the average person that inherits one will start seeing symptoms around age 75. And then for those people that do get Alzheimer's disease and don't have either of those genes, they're much older, like in their 80s, and it's just a much smaller segment of the Alzheimer's population. But it's still possible because, you know, maybe they just had the perfect environmental storm that there's other things that can cause Alzheimer's. It's not just that one gene. It's just that one gene um, is an increased risk. And it does definitely increase your risk for cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, high cholesterol. In fact, when I see somebody that has a, you know, high cholesterol and it's really kind of challenging to get it down despite diet, nutrition, nutrition, you know, precision, nutrition, um, exercise. And especially if they have a family history of any type of um, memory, dementia type stuff, then I really want to see those Alzheimer's genes. And I want to know, like, what are we up against? Because if I, I want people to be very clear that if you have really high cholesterol and you have this genotype, then you're going to have to be much more aggressive with getting, you know, where you want to be. And my hope for people is that they can get their cholesterol to a good level, a normal level, because I don't want my patients, especially if they have um, a risk for Alzheimer's disease to be put on a statin, which is a cholesterol lowering drug because statins you know, have been shown to be bad for your memory and your brain and they create certain nutritional deficiencies. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of side effects. So I would much rather get somebody's cholesterol lower naturally. And often that involves specific nutrition. It's just sometimes you feel like you've got to throw a lot at it.
0: Okay. What about uh, MTFHR? Do you have a look at the MTFHR?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, MTHFR, you know, it's, has to do with metabolizing folate. So folate is vitamin B9. And we eat folate in our diet, it's in green leafy vegetables. And then our body converts it with that MTHFR enzyme, it converts it into methylfolate. And then that methylfolate is what allows the methylation cycle to go around. And the whole point of the methylation cycle is to recycle homocysteine and create SAMe, which SAMe is kind of like an important molecule for turning on and off genes. And so if you have an MTHFR problem, then, you know, at its basic level, what's happening is your MTHFR enzyme is not able to convert folate, the inactive form of vitamin B9, into the active form of vitamin B9. And then you kind of clog up the metabolic pathways that happen after that. Mm -hmm. And then there's side effects from clogging up those metabolic pathways. And those can be varied and extensive. If you uh, look in my book on the MTHFR gene, there's a long list of all the potential health effects and problems related to that. And it's very long and extensive because ultimately you clog up those metabolic pathways and then it just can create all sorts of problems.
0: Yeah. So this is, this is very important as well, because most of the times when I see, when people come up to me and they ask me, Hey, you know, I did my genetic testing. What are the, some of the things that I should be looking at? Most of the people have like, At least the ones that I see, they're more like um, either too hyper or too, I mean, they're going through some sort of a hard time. They're not being able to cope up with life stress. And then like there are a set of things that I ask them if if they did follow my advice and I ask them, please go get a genetic testing done. If you've done everything, like, let's see what you will be surprised to. And you don't even have to come to me, like read your results yourself and you will be surprised. And MTHFR is one of those things where I tell them that, Hey, listen, on the bright side, if you, if it's all good, then it can help you in a lot of DNA repair processes. It can help you be productive. It could help you be alert. But then if you have, if you're not being able to methylate properly and methylate is one of methylation is also one of those processes that if you're looking to live for a longer time, then you better have your methylation processes. Right. And you know, it could lead from anxiety to depression to heart attack. Like you said, the list is so long, and that's and and because it's only a process of like converting the B nine into or the folic acid to its methylated form. There's easy fixes to it as well, and you know you don't have to go through like crazy uh, complicated things. So that's why I I keep telling people like, hey, listen, there are some of the genes that it's advisable to look at. One of them would be. MPFHR and also like if you if you have some sort of a deficiency or if you are looking to optimize it, having some kind of like a methylated B12 or methylfolate or like you mentioned SAMe or even creatine, choline, all of these things can help, and these things can be easily accessible. You don't have to go through, you know. Sometimes people ask me about peptides and all these things. I'm like, hey, listen, that's all very complicated. Just keep your life simple. And just look at some of these things. So what, what else do you think? I have a few ideas that I can share with you, like some of the things that I personally think are like important genes, but I want to hear from you. Anything else that uh, comes to your mind?
1: Um, certainly. I think before we move on from MTHFR, I... I personally, clinically, when I see somebody that has MTHFR, I'm always measuring their homocysteine level. I mean, I do that anyways, but especially if they have MTHFR. And I like to get that homocysteine within like a narrow range of around six to eight. And I never rarely, I never just give somebody methylfolate. Okay. I might give them like extra methylfolate in addition to homocysteine redox which is a supplement that i give a lot of people and full disclosure like that's from my supplement line but what that supplement has is it has not just the methyl folate which you need but it also has the methylcobalamin and the ab6 and the b2 and the tmg and everything to make that pathway work the, the methylation cycle work mm-hmm. and um one thing that I think is very interesting and maybe a lot of people are not aware of it, you probably are, is that the, that enzyme, the MTHFR enzyme, yes, every genetic risk allele you have, yours works less efficiently, but you can also have no genetic risk alleles, have the perfect MTHFR genes and be low in vitamin B2 and still have an MTHFR enzyme that doesn't work very well because the B2 attaches to that MTHFR enzyme and it like changes the shape of it so that it works better. So if you have, if you're not taking B2 or if you're low in B2, you're going to have more MTHFR issues. So that's why I give that supplement that has everything in it because, and and if if, For some reason, I think people need extra folate because maybe they're pregnant or I'm not happy with their homocysteine levels coming down like they should. Then I'll give them more or maybe just methylfolate, which is an option. But it's not like I think it's erroneous and shows a level of ignorance about MTHFR when somebody is just given the methylfolate in a high dose because there's a lot of potential problems related to that. So when I have a patient that comes in and they have that, you know, I'm I guess I'm happy they're taking that rather than not taking anything. You know, they're somebody's led them down the right uh, a right path. They just didn't get them all the way there.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's one of the reasons why I think the work you're doing is so great because. You know, you are like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you're not just using. I mean, you're using your experience, you're using the science, you're using the research, and you're using all of all of these complex informations together. Like the B2 part, even I wasn't aware of it. So you're using all of these other information and then seeing what can be best suited for the client. And this is this is something that I haven't seen many people do. And that's one of the reasons, primary reasons, why I wanted to get you onto the show, because you know there are a lot of people out there who might have some information on how some things work, but to go the extra mile, you have to look into a lot of other data, like you mentioned. So thank you for doing that. And uh, yeah, so we covered MTHFR, the APOE4, uh, what else is left? Some of the- Well, we talked about the
1: hemochromatosis iron gene. Uh, yeah. Um did you want me to talk about another one or I don't know how Any,
0: anything else do you think is important for us to mention? Like if someone, has, oh. if someone did their okay. genetic report or. Uh, we, we, could, we could
1: talk all day.
0: There's,
1: It's just a matter of how, you know.
0: Yeah. Let's go for okay. one more and then we'll uh, move okay. on from this.
1: Well, um, the first one that comes to mind is, and this is, I guess, for personal reasons um, is the celiac gene I think is an important one um, well there's two celiac genes but um, you know they're both celiac genes and they both result in the end result of increased risk for autoimmune diseases specifically increased risk for celiac disease which is an autoimmune disease that causes your immune system to attack your body when you eat gluten and it's um, misperceived as just being a digestive disease but the reality is that while many people that have celiac disease have digestive problems when they eat gluten, the, a large number of people, actually they develop neurological problems and not digestive problems when they eat gluten if they have this gene because celiac disease triggers an autoimmune process and it doesn't just stop at your gut for a lot of people. It often goes to other parts of your body. This is why we, there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of dermatitis or petiform, but that's a, a skin condition that results from celiac disease and people eating gluten. And they develop this awful, itchy rash um, because they're eating gluten and they have celiac disease and maybe they don't even have a digestive problem. Maybe they just have this skin rash. Mm-hmm. And so then there's, um, there's gluten ataxia. <laughs> gluten ataxia is when you eat gluten and the, your immune system is triggered to attack your cerebellum which a lot of what happens is the gluten has like a molecular mimicry to your cerebellum or other parts of your body and your body kind of mistakes the gluten for a part of your body and then it attacks. The autoimmune disease causes your immune system to attack a certain part of your body. So in gluten ataxia, it attacks your cerebellum and then, well, ataxia means like you have poor balance and gait and basically you just end up having this kind of weird walk and cerebellar damage which causes balance problems and a lot of neurological problems that you don't want. Mm-hmm. So, um and unfortunately, like I was mentioning about neurodegenerative diseases, um anything that destroys and damages your nervous system, it has long-term implications, so that's why it's really important to diagnose these things early before there is serious neurological damage. So I have this gene. I passed it down to my daughter. I think that, you know, celiac disease, the celiac gene had was a part of me developing Crohn's. Um, at a very young age, my daughter developed gluten sensitivity and I, took her off of gluten, um, because I didn't want it to press to celiac disease. And, um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about as far as that goes. It's a big topic, but it's nice that we can look at the genes to kind of see what your risks are, because if I see that gene in somebody, then I always feel the need to talk to people about it because maybe it's not affecting them or maybe it is, and they're just not aware of it, mm-hmm. but maybe it's affecting like one of their relatives, maybe their children, maybe their parents. So not everybody's affected the same, but when you can talk to people about these things, then there's a lot of value, not just in helping that person, but you kind of get to, help a lot of different people within their family if they kind of let you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The awareness part of it is a big thing. And personally, for me, I keep on telling people that people who don't even have celiac disease, but gluten and some of the proteins associated with like Aladdin and things, they enter the body. And even if you don't have some sort of a biomarker for um, like a celiac disease, but they sort of, um, you know, they have the protein called sonulin. They start, poking up holes in your uh, gut, a lot others call it leaky gut. So these tight barriers in your gut, they start getting open, and then a lot of the unwanted things might flow out in the bloodstream. Then we have you know, an onset of other inflammatory pathways that are activated. There's lipopolysaccharides. If the toxins are crazy enough, they can eventually leak into your blood-brain barrier and be transported into the brain where this causes another set of neurological issues but then for everyone who's super focused on performance longevity generally you know I mean if you if you have it all the time like there is some level of low-grade inflammation that keeps on coming with gluten and sometimes you're right you don't even realize it you realize it after like four or five days and then you know you get brain fog you're you get slow you can't focus at work or at the gym so I'm glad you brought that up Now, since now we've covered about genes and what genes are, proteins, we've covered about so many genetic factors. Let's look at some solutions. So I know we, okay, I know we, um, everyone who's listening would be like, okay, you said there's not a one size fits all. But if we had to give away like general strategies for not flipping that switch on, right? What are some of the basic strategies that you think are important for everyone who's listening to and some, some things that are easy that they can employ in their own life.
1: Yeah. So some of those things we already discussed, general strategies, if we just kind of get as big and general as possible, I mean, look at the main things that are creating problems, clean up your diet, you know, reduce sugar intake, um, increase vegetables, um, healthy proteins, fruits, nuts, you know, I am I'm not a big fan of gluten grains in general. So I like people to eat kind of a low inflammatory diet period. Um, that's huge gut microbiome, making sure that your gut flora is healthy, um, through probiotics and minimizing antibiotics um reducing stress you know that's a huge piece of the puzzle and often something that is hard to kind of quantify and acknowledge but that's huge um and having tools for that as both a you know just a general person and as a clinician like that's a really important thing as far as my practice um exercise Of course, you know, we're just talking about ways to turn on good genes and turn off bad genes. Exercise um, in a way that is healthy for you. Don't exercise in a way that's going to stress out your body more. Um, And sleep. Make sure that you're getting adequate quality sleep. Um, And spending time with, you know, having a good support system family unit whatever friends whatever just to kind of help people with that mental health piece mm-hmm. those are probably the most generic um I, I use a lot of nutrition in my practice and i you know there's specific supplements that i could go into if you want yeah, um, you yeah so as far, as far as like it you know a lot, a lot of times people will say like if there were just like three or four things that you would recommend just generally to everybody, like, what would that be? And that's, that's a hard, hard question for me to answer because, you know, I'm thinking, well, what are your genes? What are your labs? What are are your risk factors? And, And it's hard to narrow that down to three or four because the reality is that most people have more problems than they are aware of or want to acknowledge and address. So, but if I'm, you know i've thought about this a lot and in general the you know top ones are it's it's it's, it's i'm gonna, i'm going to bore you with these answers because it's so obvious like um <laughs> vitamin d you know just because most people are low in vitamin d and there are some genes that you know make that exacerbated but vitamin d is a big one and that's just something that i consider kind of like a low hanging fruit that you get to fix so many things with one pill, Um, people don't put up a big stink about taking it. Maybe they don't feel dramatically better taking it, but um, it's very important. Um, Usually some type of omegas, fish oil type of thing, just for general inflammation um, and brain health. Um, Probiotic, and then maybe a good multivitamin mineral, mm-hmm. and I just, I just always feel like when I stop there, I feel like that's better than nothing. But like, I'm just disappointed that that's it. Because, and for a lot of people, you know, if they can just do those things, and maybe that's all they can do, that's better than nothing. But ideally, I mean, I just think people need more than that, and what they need depends on their specific situation usually
0: i think that's the spot on while you were giving your take on this i was mentally thinking if i someone put me on the spot and they asked me like what were the four supplements that i would recommend to someone our list match pretty much i would say the first thing would be vitamin d but combined with some sort of a bioavailable k2 yeah i only give d3
1: k2 thank you for yeah thank you for that that yeah. would
0: be one. The second would be, uh, yeah, a fish oil. Well, you know, something with high EPA, DHA. That's good for brain health, oral inflammation, just good for your cell integrity as well. Then I would add some sort of like a like a complete mineral spectrum. I prefer like having like a full spectrum mineral, but um, some like higher, something I would... I would technically add more magnesium but if you could someone can find a full spectrum mineral with like high levels of magnesium that would be one and the fourth for me would be amino acids just not chain amino acids but just pure amino acids which you know they could again do so many things in our body so i'm happy where our, our list like match like 80 percent
1: yeah <laughs> yeah great. yeah um, i think that's all great
0: yeah so you mentioned about like you know getting dna tests at an early age is there any disadvantages do you think that these people might have of getting a dna test
1: well yes um but i think that has more to do with the lack of knowledge and understanding with what to do with the data than the actual risk so i th- I think it's important. That's, that's part of why I kind of wrote the book was to give people tools for if they've done this genetic testing and want to know more about what their genes mean. Um, and it's not perfect. You know, I would love to have the time to go back and redo it, but yes, that would be the main risk. Just creating an unintended anxiety or stress or fear. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, it's important to have somebody that can kind of talk you through it and give you tools to latch onto rather than just theoretical fears. But it's important to be aware, right? I mean, I, I don't want people to have serious genetic risks and I didn't kind of address them in a meaningful, productive way. Um, I don't you know, want people to put their head down in the sand. It's just some people I don't think are always in the right headspace for that. Mm-hmm.
0: I think personally it's, it's always a good idea to have your genes tested and even like to your point doing it at an early age like if you have a child and if you do it for your child it just saves you so much of decision making and hassle of navigating through your child's life because now you sort of have like a plan and again you can you might be able to do it yourself but I highly recommend that you get in touch with someone like Dr. Christie who can guide you through this and like just as an example growing up in the Middle East I I was fond of health but I would also engage in the tradition and smoke a lot of like this uh, tobacco water pipe or shisha or hookah for a very long time, and then, you know, everyone would tell me, oh, it's not that healthy, and I'm like, yeah, I know, but, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm young. I can do it. And until and that's, like, so many years ago, when I got my genes tested, and I found that I am not able to detoxify correctly, so my uh, GST, GPX gene, there was um, a deletion in one of those things. So basically, what I'm trying to say for everyone is that me compared to someone else who might be smoking shisha, I'm at a disadvantage because my body doesn't detox a lot of these chemicals, a lot of these, you know, with to, not tobacco, but like all of these tar and all these different chemicals that are inside. So it might be very easy for a friend who is sitting next to me and that's why they probably don't feel anything. But then for me, it makes a hell lot of a difference. And it is one thing that will not let me live for a long time. So what did I do? I use that information. I stopped smoking. I don't even go near to smoke. And now every time I ha- I'm put into situations where I know that my detox pathways might take a strain, I either supplement or I stay away from this situation. So it could be as easy as this, like understanding what your genes are saying, uh, predicting it with like the help of an expert and then taking simple steps, just like saying no to something. And that could take you a long way. And I I mean, you know, me and Dr. Chrissy can be talking for ages and we might do a second episode on all these genes. And, you know, if someone's interested, let us know and we'll probably make time somewhere in the future. But now we're coming to the end of the podcast. And my question to you is, if you had a time machine, like, let's say you could go back in time and then you could go to your younger self, right? 20 years old or whatever. And you could give yourself one piece of advice, knowing all that you know right now. This doesn't have to be on doing a genetic testing. It could be on anything. What would be that one piece of advice that you would go back and tell your younger self?
1: Oh, well, for me, 20 wasn't young enough. I would have to go back much further because by the time I was 20, I'd already had serious health problems that I would have liked to avoid before that. Um, not that 20 was too late, but when I was 16 I had part of my small intestine removed and was diagnosed with Crohn's when in reality, you know, the problem really started many years before that. It just came to a head when I was 16. So, I would really like to go back to like 10-year-old me. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically I think at that point in time I'd like to go back to like my parents as a 10-year-old because they really have more control and um at that point in time it's more about what your parents are telling you to do and not to do than you as a 10 year old so um i mean i would like to go back to 10 year old me and my parents and say um get this child off of gluten and get her some good vitamins and heal up her gut and stop giving her antibiotics when they're just destroying our health." so that would be me going back to 10 year old me if i was to go back to 20 year old me um I would probably say um, you might need a bile sequestrant because your part of your small intestine that was removed is not, because I had part of my small intestine removed, I was not able to absorb bile and that bile was creating like a laxative effect and that took way too long to get diagnosed and I almost kind of like most of my things have to self-diagnose it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of an idiosyncrasy for me.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for telling us about your life and, you know, telling some of these parts, which not a lot of people are comfortable sharing. So I appreciate you for that. And for anyone who's listening, how can they get in touch with you? Let's say someone listening to the show says, I'm going to do my 23andMe or something else. How do they get in touch with you what's the best url or website
1: um well they can go to genetic detoxification and from there there's a dr sutton link that will link you to my practice information um so you can also i think just google dr christie sutton and i'll probably come up you can look up you can Google my book, um, genetic detoxification, or sorry, genetic testing, defining your path to a personalized house plan. Um, Christy Sutton, and you'll find me. Um, the Yeah, but genetic detoxification is the best direct okay. way to kind of get to me.
0: We will put that in the show notes. And Dr. Christy, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time, presence, and energy with me. You've, thank I'm you. Sure you've, the conversation that we have had has blown a lot of people's minds and I'm grateful for all the good work that you've been doing, all the healing that you've brought to yourself, your family and to others over the past so many years. I appreciate you for that. And thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for everything that you do.
0: Thank you so much. And this is me, everyone, CJ, talking to you. From the Shift with CJ podcast. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated. If you want to learn more, then head over to our website, www.shiftwithcj.com.